Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio, uh, the podcast where we talk about politics, theory and activism from a revolutionary socialist perspective. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. And we're recording today on Gadigal land, land that was stolen, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Happy New Year, Chloe. Yeah, Happy New Year. (laughs) What's you up to? Not much, just working, you know, driving trains, the usual. Um, That's what I did at 2am on New Year's Eve. Oh, sorry, New Year's Day. Life of the Prol. Yeah. 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 Someone's got to drive people home. Yeah. You know? Someone's got to clean up the vomit on. Yeah. Every single, every single train that I drove had like multiple carriages locked off because of vomit. Just sort oh of my God. There. Yeah. Poor cleaner. <laughs> yeah. Gets to have the fermented carriage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, relatively privileged. I don't have to <laughs> deal with that. Um, yeah. So how was your. New Year's and holidays. Good. Aside from obviously going along to some Palestine solidarity demos, um, it was, yeah, relaxing, doing a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. I hear you have been too. Yep, I have. Um, I'm excitedly reading for the Marxism conference, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. Um, so I've been reading a book by George Plakhanov. Georgie Plakhanov? Georgie. Georgie. Um who I've never read before. Like, I mean, obviously when we talk about Plakhanov a lot of the time, um, by the time the Russian Revolution of 1917 came along, he was like not playing a very good We like his old stuff role. better than his new stuff. Yes, yeah. his old stuff was cool though. And this book that I just read uh, was written in the late 1890s and it's a critique. It's a, basically a philosophy. And I'll have you know that Lenin himself said that uh, anyone who wants to be a really intelligent communist has to read the philosophical works of Plakhanov. So I'm on my way. Yeah, you, you do know. well. you got to catch up, <laughs> become an intelligent <laughs> communist. Yeah. Uh, what did you read? Well, actually, I um, reread not all of, but a lot of uh, State and Revolution because we're going to be talking about yeah. the state uh, later in the podcast. Um, uh, but, yeah, similar terrain, lots of, yeah, angry Russian polemics, Lenin mm-hmm. denouncing Kautsky and the Refimus sellouts of his day who were trying to distort Marxism. Mm. Um, yeah, it's the, um, one of the cool things about reading Plakhanov, which I kind of wasn't fully expecting, was he's really part of that milieu of like Russian intellectuals, including Lenin and, you know, Marxists who um, he's, they're just vicious basically yeah. to their opponents. It's like it's really fun to, to read. Um, you kind of wouldn't read anything like that written yeah, today no that's like political that you know yeah. um but it's you know it's important like they they you know see these the the main thing that he's arguing and polemicizing against is the Narodniks who were like um you know into uh terrorism trying to overthrow the like, a series of intellectuals basically trying to overthrow the aristocracy just through sort of individual terrorism <laughs> yeah and they had a whole theory about like the hero and the crowds you know the crowds mm. and the, the masses are just these passive people so Plakhanov is just going absolutely ham on them like he hates these people and he's um tearing their philosophies and theories to shreds but you know the, these were important debates this is how mm. the whole Marxist movement clarified its ideas at the time so yeah it's nice to read Sorry, but what was the other thing you read you were about to say? Uh, well, slightly less political but also um, really good. Uh, finally got around to reading Barbara Kingsolver's 
Demon Copperfield, yeah, which so was a, actually came out in 2022. Lots the comrade gave it uh, to me for my birthday, and it's just such a good novel. Um, it's like based structurally and the characters um, on Charles Dickens' David mm. Copperfield, which I have not read. Um, no, shamefully, <laughs> I haven't watched the movie, uh, so I did read <laughs> some of the narrative. Um, yeah. But it's yeah, it's just such a like. Uh, warm and sympathetic but not kind of looking down on portrayal of working class life and the tragedy of uh, this young kid in growing up in the 90s um, in Virginia and the backdrop of it is like the opioid epidemic in mm. America but it's not, you know, unlike Dickens, it's not just this kind of middle class kind of distant observer sympathetically mm. but, yeah, it's this real... Um, beautiful portrayal of like both the suffering of working class people, also their humanity. Mm. Um, and, you know, she's just, yeah, just raging against all of capitalist America. Yeah. yeah it's so great. Um, and yeah, really like humanist look at some of the, the most depressing part of America in some ways, um, you know, West Virginia and Virginia, just the poverty and the opioid epidemic that killed tens of thousands of, of people mm. just so some capitalists could get rich. Um, the thing I read of hers a little while ago is um, gives you a sense of what she's like. She, in the 90s, I think, oh, sorry, in the 80s, um, in 1984, she personally went to, as in Barbara Kingsolver, personally went to Arizona when there was a, a miners' strike on and she documented it in this beautiful book. Um, and the, the, like, the people who really led the miners' strike, kind of similar to the 1984 British miners' strike actually happening the same year, um, but the people who really led it and were at the forefront were women, like the wives of the of the miners. And actually, um, a lot of the that Arizona mine uh, had like women actually worked in it as well. Mm. Uh, a lot of immigrant, like Spanish um, background, sort of Latin American background um, women. So yeah, it's a really nice um, firsthand account of this like impressive strike, which they lose because kind of you know one of those. Um, uh, defensive strikes against the the kind of onslaught of neoliberalism in the 1980s, um, but it's very moving anyway. Mm. And that's the kind of person she is. She's not just a yeah, um, a kind of detached intellectual. Mm. Yeah, like in the backdrop of Demon Copperfield, like just as a kind of historical reference, that she tells some of the stories about Virginian coal miners and their like you know massive kind of armed struggles at times uh, against the American state. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so obviously, yeah, not this kind of disinterested observer but someone who's, you know, a supporter of the class struggle mm. and that's kind of, even though that's not the subject of the novel, that's kind of part of the backdrop and really like her, uh, what she's kind of saying in the novel about the opioid opioid crisis is not just this kind of sad thing that happened but it's something that was done to people you know yeah, it, was, yeah. it was done by corporations like somebody is to blame and it's why even though she's really popular you know on the bestseller list mm. she get, gets quite a lot of like very critical reviews that don't really like how black yeah. and white she is about those class lines yeah totally she's too preachy that sort of complaint yeah, yeah. didn't she win a pulitzer though oh, yeah yeah like yeah very well deserved not all of them are, but that one very much is. Very rarely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so today uh, we thought we would discuss, we don't have a guest, it's just us two, um, and we thought we would discuss a very important part of Marx's theory, which is the capitalist state. Yeah, we wanted to talk about uh, the state because it's obviously one of the key debates 
um, in politics, but just in the socialist movement is how does the socialist movement orient to the state and that key debate between reform and revolution, like can you capture the state or um, do you have to overthrow it? And I think just so much of what we're told about the state, whether it's by like liberalism, conservatism or social democracy, um, is that more or less the state is a neutral institution uh, that sits above society. Um, You know, you think about the, you know, images of, you know, the courts, for example, different parts of the state of, you know, Lady Justice with her blindfold and the scales of justice. Um, And every political theory basically accepts this. Um, So even if, uh, you know, liberalism or, you know, on the left, reformism can recognise that, you know, injustices happen in the world and they want to campaign uh, against injustices, these aren't, you know, questions that fundamentally the state um, as an institution, there's something wrong with it, but that the state has been, you know, corrupted. It's been captured by powerful interest groups like, you know, the Chicago Boys and neoliberalism, um, not actually calling into question the idea that the state itself is fundamentally a class institution. Yeah, and I think a lot of the way that, you know, the sort of framing of the state in in mainstream politics is, you know, there's just debates about how much or how little state intervention there should be into society. And again, this kind of accepts that the state is a neutral institution and it's just, you know, should it have more or less power? Perhaps more power corrupts it. Perhaps less power means, um, you know, things aren't regulated enough or whatever. And that's kind of just, you know, how um, politics is divided. Like, and you see this especially in the US where, you know, conservatives pretty much define themselves by wanting a small state and liberals and social democrats kind of define themselves by just wanting um, a slightly bigger one. But I think that whole framework is really rubbish. Um, you know, for one thing, like conservatives who are for a small state love a big repressive state apparatus. They're never saying defund the police. In fact, they're the people who uh, want the police to have more funding. They want the military uh, and the prisons to have more funding and so on. Um, they just want as little regulation of businesses as possible. And liberals, on the other hand, like even if they want a bit more state regulation and services and things like that, they never really want the state to infringe on the vested interests of the capitalist class. So I think that that traditional framing of conservative versus liberal politics in the mainstream um, is, you know, they, they all kind of agree more than they disagree. Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether or not the centre-left or the centre-right are in power, like the state more or less stays the same, like aside from a few, you know, reforms around the edges, like most of the bureaucracy, if you're in a democratic state, you know, um, uh, stay regardless of who gets elected in or out of government. And that um, stable role that it plays in capitalism uh, is a really uh, core one. Um, And despite the kind of surface ideology of capitalism, particularly like neoliberalism, um, that, you know, capitalism's ideal is like a smaller and smaller state. As you said, the state's actually gotten bigger and bigger over time. It's, um, you know, much bigger than, you know, the feudal or absolutist state. For example, in Australia in the early 1900s, um, uh, state expenditure made up less than 3% of the total economy. So still you know, not insignificant, Uh, but that has just grown and grown. So like by the mid-1970s, that figure had uh, risen to one-third of the economy and it's, you know, roughly stayed at around that and still is around that uh, today. So this is a, you know, huge chunk um, of, you know, economic activity. Yeah, and it's why like, you know, in Australia today, and and this is the case, it's worth saying, you know, in the US as well, the state's a massive employer. I, I, I keep referencing the US because I think, 
so there's so much like ideological bullshit about the US that sees it as this sort of small state um, uh, thing or that, you know, throughout the neoliberal era that countries like the US and Australia have really shrunk their state and that is just not true at all. Um, all of it has has massively increased uh, and we'll go on to talk a bit about the repressive apparatus. Obviously, that has massively increased, but really all sections of it. It's a massive bureaucracy. So, yeah, it's the biggest employer. Um, and I think it's worth saying as well, you know, a, little, a few more things about the structure of the state. So it has top bureaucrats who are basically part of the ruling class. When we say ruling class, we don't just mean the 1%, the capitalists. We mean these fuckwits as well who are paid very highly um, and who run, you know, departments like the education department, the courts, as in the judges, um, the, you know, police commissioners and people like that, the generals, of course. Um, and many of these people move in and out of the public and private sectors, it's worth saying. Uh, notoriously university vice chancellors who, who are technically public servants, you know, um, at the head of the public universities uh, on all of them across the country on like over a million dollars a year. Um, and this is, you know, pretty normal for state, like those kind of upper crust of, of state functionaries. And it's one of the things that means that they're extremely loyal to the system. And they really like swim in, you know, circles with the capitalist class and see themselves as, you know, part of that class. People might remember a few years ago the scandal of the former CEO of Australia Post buying herself and like the executive Cartier watches and there being this hue and cry weirdly led by Scott Morrison but you know whatever um about this and you know rightfully public servants supposedly you know spending you know taxpayer money on like these personal Cartier watches um and in response to this when she was like hauled before some kind of tribunal it was just like oh well this is like totally par for the course in the private sector so they really like see themselves um, as you know, part of the same class. Didn't she um, go on to work in the private sector as oh, well? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> she'd obviously proved herself. Up our, yeah. Our point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It might be worth like asking, given all of this like overgrowth of like ideology about um, you know neoliberals, particularly wanting small states. Like, why does the capitalist class? Why does capitalism need a state? Like, why can't they just have? Malay and other neoliberals, you know, dream of a naked free market and nothing mm. else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, like, to start to answer that, I think it's worth saying, like, capitalism cannot exist without a state and it never has. You know, there's sometimes a romantic looking back at the kind of laissez-faire era of um, the British uh, Empire and, you know, um, uh, when the free market was kind of finding its feet as though it was untainted by the state then. But, I mean, it's even, you know, talking about the British Empire, it's like this in was the name. a massive, yeah. it's in the name, right? This was a massive um, and very violent state that created the conditions for the market to exist and had to constantly prop it up. I mean, it was the British state that actually founded and directed the um, British East, East, India, East company, India Company, yeah. you know, which was really the basis of capitalist development in that era uh, and obviously colonised half the fucking world as well. You can't do that with just a few privateers, you need uh, a capitalist state for that. Yeah, Marx described um, the capitalist class as a band of warring brothers. So, you know, brothers in the sense that they have a shared interest in exploiting the working class, but warring 
both in the sense of like, you know, Woolies versus Coles, capitalists competing for market share, but also, you know, you can't actually imagine capital without and some attachment to the state and even all of the biggest, you know, so-called multinational corporations. Everybody knows what state they belong to. You know, Apple is part of the USSA. Huawei is like China. And uh so I think, you know, the capitalist class really uh, needs states both to, you know, negotiate deals and tariffs um, with other nations, but also, you know, imperialism. States are competing uh, economically, ultimately competing uh, militarily. Um, that's, you know, obviously a really important um, function. Every capitalist state is a nation state. Yeah, definitely. And I think another important, so, so they have to regulate and mediate those disputes between capitalists in their own country between capitalist states across the world, but also they have to contain and maintain the um, class distinction in their own countries. And a huge part of that is, you know, containing working class struggle, creating whole legal strictures that uh, force people, you know, make sure that people go to work and um, uh, never steal and don't threaten the state and the and the capitalist class in any way. So, uh, all of that is absolutely essential. I think without a state, you know, capitalism wouldn't last a day. It would crumble in the kind of um, contradiction of, of uh, class inequality because there'd be nothing stopping workers from just, you know, <laughs> overthrowing capitalism. Yeah, there's also just like a whole bunch of uh, like really essential functions that the capitalist class need but which are not in and of themselves like that profitable or at least in the beginnings of capitalism were that profitable. So there's like maintaining roads. Obviously, they still like to privatise those and put up toll roads some of the time for that, but maintaining roads, ports, like huge amount of, uh, you know, infrastructure that, you know, if it didn't exist, um, capitalism couldn't function and which often like no individual capitalist is really interested in bankrolling. A whole bunch of, uh, you know, research, for example, uh, that, you know, institutions like universities, the CSIRO, et cetera, uh, do that can later become, um, you know, put to use for making profitable commodities, but which some of like the initial work that goes into it isn't profitable. So it's better, uh, you know, to have the state uh, do that. Um, the, regulation of migration um, in a way that is like useful for um, the capitalist class, um, you know, skilled migration as opposed to workers just having freedom of movement. And I think um, actually the COVID-19 pandemic um, was a pretty good demonstration of actually how essential the capitalist state um, is uh, for capitalism. Like who else is going to run a massive vaccine program? Obviously there were individual capitalists that made some profits off the side of that, but who's actually going to, you know, roll out a vaccine uh, program, roll um, out, you know, quarantining, uh, quarantine laws. Um, all of that I think was a real demonstration of how um, the state's just totally central to the functioning of capitalism, particularly in, in kind of moments of crisis like that. Yeah, definitely. And, and like, I just think this is all a, an extension of that principle of the capitalists are a band of warring brothers, so they're more interested in immediate profits and they can't plan too far into the future, whereas the capitalist state can take it upon itself to, you know, through taxation, get a bunch of surplus that they can then spend on things that are absolutely essential to a modern economy. So think roads, railways, the postal system, the electricity grid, you know, even when parts of this are privatised, so much of it is heavily regulated by the capitalist state because these are essential. Like, you know, how could the how could business run if they couldn't get their stuff across the country or um, couldn't, you know, post things to each other or use electricity and the internet and stuff? So, um so yeah, and I think that's been that's important even again in states that um, 
that really promote private industry marketization of everything, privatization, um, that you'll still see, if not outright ownership of those kinds of industries, then heavy um, regulation of them. And it, it brings us to another point, I guess, which is, um, you know, one of the misconceptions about the state is that there are, and, and a lot of socialists and, and left-wing people have this, that basically, um, you know, if the more you have state ownership of the economy, the less capitalist it is. And I just think that's really wrong. <laughs> like, yeah, you can have like some spectrum of like yeah. how socialistic or capitalistic you are, depending on yeah, like exactly. whether or not the rail's been nationalized or something. Exactly. And don't get me wrong, like, I'm for nationalizing the railways and, and various other things that I think shouldn't be subjected to the profit motive. Um, but you can just as well have a healthy capitalist system running even when the state owns the majority of or all of the economy. And that's really, you know, what the USSR was, um, what, what China was more um, in the 1980s and so on was state capitalism where it's still doing all of these functions that we've talked about, uh, but the state, it plays a much more important and oversized role in the economy. And it's worth saying like the, you know, the US and Australia which have been capitalist countries for the, you know, um, the entire existence since the colonies uh, began, um, they have had various periods where there's been more state ownership of the economy and that hasn't fundamentally changed the nature of those systems. So in World War II, it, was, it made sense for the state to own more parts of the economy so they could direct it towards production for the war. Um, and so they did. And this was very much in the interests of the capitalist class as a whole. It didn't negate the kind of capitalist essence of the system or the state. Our Aside from the, you know, really a central role that the state has in actually like regulating the economy, running bits of it, um, you know, overseeing a bunch of important infrastructure, but the key function of the state um, is is creating the conditions in which the capitalist class can exploit uh, workers. And that is always through the threat of or openly through, you know, coercion. I think it was Engels who described the state as at its most fundamental as a special uh, um, body of armed men. But the state always always needs to rule, even dictatorial states really, through a mixture of coercion and consent. Like there also has to be, uh, you know, release valves in a liberal democracy that might be through elections, um, you know, through, you know, ideology that kind of venerates the state. And I think a whole bunch of that aspect of, you know, trying to create a degree of consent um, um, amongst the ruled is attempting to make the interests of the ruling class, the interests of the capitalist class, appear to be the universal interests of society overall. So anytime you hear, you know, politicians say the buzzword national interest, yeah, you know, think <laughs> capitalist yeah. interest. So trying to, you know, sell this idea that kind of what's good for the capitalist economy overall, what's good for, you know, Gina Reinhardt, Murdoch, you know, the big bosses um, is going to be beneficial overall um, for Australian society and by implication workers. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's lots of different states around the world, you know, some are democratic, some more dictatorial, some are theocratic uh, and, you know, ruled by the the head of churches or the clergy. Um, some are like presidential, but I think it's just worth saying like these are more pretty superficial um, differences in states. They're all capitalist states. They're all trying to find different ways to do the same thing, to serve the same function, which is to uh, rule over the working class and the oppressed and to maintain capitalism. 
And I think that's why like all of the institutions of the state act in the overall interests of the capitalist class from cops to courts to the education department, even the the parts of the state that seem like the fluffier, nicer parts, um, they're all shaped by and, and acting in the interests of the capitalist class. So let's like go through these different institutions um, and I think starting with the cops. So the most basic purpose of the state is to monopolise force and to defend the private property of the capitalist class. Um, they desperately need this. I mean, what is stopping ordinary people from just wandering into Woolworths and taking what we need? What is stopping us in the long term just taking over our workplaces and saying, we'll run these ourselves, thank you? Why should, like, Gina Reinhart have billions of dollars while people are poor and sleep on the streets? Um, you need violence to be able to defend a system like that in the long term. And every single uh, every single different type of state throughout history, um, you know, has been maintaining the interests and the rule of, of a ruling class. One of the main functions of the police, I think, is to criminalise what would otherwise be seen as social problems caused by society, caused by class inequality. Um, so one of the ways they do this is they surveil and police the most vulnerable and poor people in society, you know, locking people up. Um, you know, they always police, as we know, working class neighbourhoods, um, poor black and brown people and so on. And in this way, they keep everyone in check by making an example of a minority of people who are demonized as criminals. And then this idea of the criminal, which was something that was invented, this idea hasn't always been around throughout all of human history. This is a, very much a capitalist creation. This idea of the criminal becomes, you know, something that we're all afraid to be. So it, you want to follow the rules, follow the laws, um, just keep your head down and, and go to work so that you don't um, become, you know, uh, on the bottom rungs of society and become a criminal yourself. Um, and, yeah, I think one of the major points of that is to criminalise social problems. You can cast things like poverty and homelessness as character defects rather than the result of social inequality and injustice. And I think the, in Australia that one of the ways we really um, see the worst of this is the racism towards Aboriginal people and how much of a role the police play in that. The reality is that because of, you know, two centuries of colonialism and oppression against Aboriginal people, they are extremely poor and on the outskirts of the um, the economy. Uh, you know, there's huge levels of unemployment and poverty amongst Aboriginal people. And the way that um, that the whole policing system works is that that is criminalised rather than, you know, there being any attempt to remedy that issue. Uh, and so in Australia we've seen, you know, hundreds of uh, deaths in custody of Aboriginal people because of the absolutely horrendous racist way that, cops treat them and I think it's worth saying that racism doesn't just that's not just like a normal amount of racism that exists in Australian society that's not something that they necessarily need to get taught uh but you know when they become police officers it's built into the whole way that they see the masses of people that if you're poor that if you're um you know unfortunate that that's your fault there must be something wrong with you and so there must be something wrong with Aboriginal people in general and so the whole like the Police, and you can, you know, um, see some of this in the, the Zachary Rolfe case, just have horrendous um, attitudes towards Aboriginal people that you can't, you can't get rid of just by giving them sensitivity training. This is built into the whole way they see society. Yeah, I think people can be quite shocked with the impunity with which police in Australia get away with murdering Aboriginal people. 
and this is true of you know racially oppressed minorities the world over well, that's you know black people in america um other racial minorities in different countries um and it is important for the system that they do that with almost total um impunity like zachary rolf um listeners would probably know um uh in my opinion, murdered a, an Aboriginal teenager um, in Yuendamu in, in 2019. And, uh, you know, in a court of law, he was found not guilty of murder, not guilty of manslaughter, not guilty of engaging in a violent act uh, causing death despite, you know, point blank uh, shooting uh, this man, you know, three times. Um, and to get a sense of just like how much they allow police to get away with it, like, there are all these text messages by uh, Zachary Rolf to, you know, other cops, other mates talking about, you know, how sweet his gig uh, in, you know, the outback was uh, because they could do cowboy stuff with no rules and that it was the Wild West um, out there. So, and he had um, uh, been pulled up uh, for accusations of police brutality multiple, multiple times before. I think that's not only a reflection of how racist uh, the state is, but it's a reflection of it's important that the state defends its monopoly over the use of violence uh, and the individual personnel um, who carry that out, um, that they actually have to be, you know, they enforce the law, so they're above yeah. the law. And it's like this pattern across the world, right, that cops, no matter what fucked up shit they do, they never really face any kind of justice. You see that in the US as well. There are a few trials of cops because of the overwhelming power of the Black Lives Matter movement and these huge protests of like over a million pe- millions of people but still, like the, the the vast majority of cases, cops get away with it. They're more likely to get promotions than to be put in jail for murdering people, put it that way. I think it's really important to say that um, it's actually in periods of class struggle that you see uh, how central the police are to upholding the capitalist order because, you know, most of the time it's just the general sense of social control that the existence of the police, you know, um, you know, stops workers from just yet yeah, going into Woolworths and taking what they ne- they need, uh, that kind of thing. But in times where there actually is serious strikes um, and confrontations between workers and bosses, the police are totally essential in trying to uphold uh, the capitalist order. So, um, you know, one of the most famous examples of this was, you know, during the Thatcher era, um, the miners' strike in the 80s. And what that looked like was uh, – tens of thousands of police being mobilised from all over the country, basically like an occupying force permanently entrenched in mining towns for the whole near year of the dispute. Um, they're, you know, breaking up picket lines with their batons like in the thousands. That's what uh, the police are able to do for capitalism when when it's needed. Another institution that's important to talk about are the courts and there's this idea that the laws are fair and, you know, for the most part at least, they kind of apply equally to everybody. That's the point of a court. Uh, Everyone has to front up to the judge, whether they're rich or poor. Um, Very occasionally rich people might get locked up. Um, But I think it's important to kind of peer beyond that surface representation and look at who actually defines what crimes are and what is not criminal. Uh, There's an interesting thing in basically all of bourgeois law around the world which is the separation of corporate crimes from uh, criminal, like actual crimes, I guess, the criminal um, system. So if you're a rich guy and you embezzle lots of money or whatever, you know, you're a white-collar criminal and you spend time, you, you know, you have special penalties and, um, and stuff 
in the uh, corporate legal system. And that's quite different. And the penalties, even if you've embezzled millions of dollars, are probably not as high as if you have, you know, stolen a few thousand dollars and, and you're a poor person because you will then be dealt with in the in the criminal system. So from the very outset, there's a, a class inequality in the way that crime is defined. Yeah, vice chancellors all around Australia have been caught, um, you know, by the university union, the NTEU, um, stealing wages off their workers, like wage theft to the tune of tens of billions of dollars in some instances. And you know, the cops are not coming around to like, you know, put the vice chancellor in handcuffs and haul them off, um, you know, to the courts uh, to answer for this, you know, massive, massive theft. Um, this is yet. Yeah, it's considered an industrial issue. This is dealt with by the industrial courts. There's no, you know, criminal proceedings. And that's the case, you know, even if workers die um, on the job uh, because of negligent bosses. This is not a criminal matter. It's, a, you know, it's for the industrial courts. Yeah, and, like, the arbitration system is a great example of this divide because it's, you know, goes very easy on the bosses uh, and it's really designed to neutralise and tame the unions and funnel class struggle into legal challenges. And there's a whole series of um, legal restrictions on the right to strike here in Australia. Like you basically can't go on strike unless you jump through a whole series of difficult loopholes. And even then, the arbitration court has the right pretty much at any time to say, sorry, you've overstepped the mark in this strike. You're not allowed to strike anymore uh, and force you to arbitration and so on. And like, you know, you think about the kind of liberal idea of, of rights, well, this really violates them because it's basically saying that workers can't decide to not go to work together. I mean, they can't, they can't exercise a basic right, which is just to not show up to work. Um, but, you know, of course, the legal system doesn't really care about liberal democratic freedoms. It cares about maintaining the order of the capitalist class and, um, and coming down on their uh, side every time. Yeah, this happened to your union. It, it sure did. Yeah, it has happened a, a bunch of times to my union. Um, not since I've been a train driver. Like since the when I have been, there've been lots of threats of the uh, arbitration court. Um, you know, banning our strikes or banning our industrial actions. In 2018, there was uh, basically the the court banned industrial action, a strike that the the union had been planning, um, and that you know led to the union, and I wouldn't agree with going along with this, but because you can actually defy laws, that's the thing about them, they're just fucking made up uh, and put on paper, you know, um, but it did uh, push the union to to uh, accept a, a shitty wage concession. And at the top of this whole legal system are judges, who I've got to say I think are my, my least favourite part of the whole state apparatus. I just really fucking hate it's them. It's a tough race between I mean, them and generals. cops but, and yeah. generals and everyone, you know. But, like, the judges, I mean, they sit on thrones for yeah. one thing and that's just unchallenged and seen as normal in, like, a liberal democracy. Um, they, they wear silly wigs. The silly wigs, the robes. Like, it's the most ritual-drenched part of Australian or any society beyond other than, like, Born again Christian churches and yeah. stuff, you know, like when you walk into the room, you have to face them and you have to bow <laughs> yeah. at different points. Yeah, I was in a court at one point and I got in trouble for reading a book. You're not allowed to read a book. You have to like give your undivided attention to the judge. Yeah, godlike, you know, appointees <laughs> yeah. who you know keep their position until they die. Yeah, kind of unelected. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, they're unelected. You know, unaccountable. Um, but also like they spend their life doing what, you know, being the, the agent that um, puts poor people in prison for social 
uh, crimes that are, you know, the product of social inequality and letting killer cops off the hook and, um, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah, um, there are a layer of, you know, the top echelons of the capitalist bureaucracy that liberalism, you know, probably venerates the most. You think about, you know, the absolute sycophantic celebration of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, my God, no. Um, you know, uh, when they're occasionally uh, liberal. But, you know, what do judges do in their day-to-day life? They, you know, sit there throwing poor and working-class people in jail for minor, you know, crimes of poverty, uh, let killer cops um, off the hook. Uh, And when they're in the upper echelons of power and occasionally, uh, you know, called on to make um, rulings about, you know, laws, um, important laws that are in dispute, you know, overwhelmingly they'll come down in favour of, you know, what's good for capitalism. Yeah. Ginsburg was pretty rubbish when it came to um, ruling against unions as well. That's worth saying. Like I think these, you know, there can be differences of opinion about some, you know, social rights like the right to abortion and things like that amongst judges, but they all agree about the, the, the key thing that underlies the system, which is the exploitation of workers. You can't have unions running around, you know, winning pay rises and things like that. All right, well, let's talk about, Parliament, which is meant to be the most democratic part of the system. It's meant to be the the kind of thing that we get that means that ordinary people can have an impact on society and make decisions about our own fate. Um, and, you know, there is in most, uh, or at least in lots of you know, liberal democracies, there is one man, one vote, one person, one vote. So how do the 1% seem to always get their way? What do you think? <laughs> I think for one thing, like most decisions under capitalism are not made by the elected government. They're made in corporate boardrooms um, or by unelected, you know, rich bureaucrats um, in other parts of the state. So this idea that, you know, having a a vote um, for parliament means we live in a genuinely democratic society takes um, as a just starting point assumption that all of the rest of capitalism exists, you have to go to work uh, for a boss who you don't vote for and you have absolutely no control over what you do for the vast bulk of your life, um, selling your labour um, to a boss. But then I think um, besides that, um, you know, overwhelmingly the politicians that are elected know that their job is to create the conditions in which capitalism in their country can thrive. Um, And I guess the question is, why is that? How is it that um, even though the capitalist class are tiny, they only have a tiny vote, how is it that they then shape the agenda of what politicians do? Hmm. And I think one answer that's often given often by left-wing people as well, is that it's money in politics is the problem. You know, lobbyists, and we've actually been hearing this a lot recently about why the Western governments are so pro-Israel. Oh, it's just the Israeli lobby. Um, and I think that's not the case either in, in <laughs> with Israel or with um, any other of the myriad of um, agendas that politicians put into practice. I don't think anyone needs to pay them to be pro-capitalist or to uh, to act in the, the best interests of the capitalist class. Um, and, I mean, there's a few reasons for that. I think that the politics of the parties everywhere <laughs> that, that actually get to be powerful enough uh, to have the, the numbers, the backing of the capitalist class, um, the, the historical stability or, or um, long, longevity are parties that, um, you know, are thoroughly pro-capitalist, that understand uh, the need for social stability, for capital accumulation and all of that kind of thing. Um, 
but I think there is a, you know, and that can be kind of obvious with the Liberals and um, and similar conservative parties across the world that are just so openly pro-capitalist and they're also very much intermeshed and intertwined with the capitalist class itself. Um, again, it's not that they're like literally being paid off in this dodgy way. That is happening, of course, a little bit, but, um, or, you know, sometimes to a great extent, but that's not the the main cause. But I think there is this question about like Labor and other social democratic parties, why do they do the capitalist bidding? And especially when, you know, the Labor Party in Australia, when it was set up over 100 years ago, was meant to be the party of the working class, the party of the trade unions, the, the party of, that was committed to socialism. How can they so um, so regularly, unerringly act in the, the interests of the capitalist class? Like Labor today, you can't even say has any agenda of even reforming capitalism, like realistically, like uh, the Albanese government are just totally appalling. There's a historic cost of living crisis. They're doing absolutely nothing for workers. In fact, the opposite, you know, you just look at things like the stage three tax cuts, these massive handouts to the richest people in society, just very clearly doing the bidding of the capitalist class, both in what they're not doing for workers, uh, helping anybody with the declining wages, the rising cost of housing, um, but also the actual reforms that they're implementing um, uh, to help the rich get richer. But I think it is important to say even in times where Labor have had an agenda of reform, um, those reforms were over, like were totally within the bounds of maintaining capitalism. And sometimes they could advance the interests narrowly of workers, like implementing things like, you know, pensions and, um, you know, uh, welfare for war widows, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, this was really attempting to reconcile narrowly some of the interests of workers uh, with something that would modernise capitalism. And actually a lot of the time those centre-left governments like Labor you can barely call them centre-left, but the Democrats actually can implement some of those reforms which give capitalism a bit of a refresh, like which, A, help workers, uh, you know, um, help keep workers a bit happier, um, but B, which actually kind of modernise and refresh the state um, and make um, make capitalist society more stable. I think it's worth saying, like, there are, you know, there are serious limits to that. Like, any time they... You know, they're, they're, it's very easy for the capitalist class to discipline politicians or parties that they think are going outside the bounds of what is um, acceptable. And I mean, the example that I always think of is like the mining tax when Kevin Rudd, the Labor Prime Minister, proposed this mining tax, which was not a very radical or left wing thing at all. In fact, it would have benefited um, some sections of the capitalist class, like manufacturing and so on, by um, taxing the super profits of the mining industry and redistributing that effectively to other parts of industry. But the mining uh, bosses are obviously a very powerful and important part of Australian capital. And so they cracked down on that. Uh, They had a massive campaign really led by Gina Reinhart and people like Twiggy Forrest that unseated the, um, the Rudd government and, you know, labor, labor itself feeling the, the mild pressure of that, um, you know, ousted Rudd and replaced him with Gillard and vowed never to do a mining tax basically ever again. Um, And again, this is like a really, this was, they weren't being threatened with a coup or something. Uh, This was not a radical reform whatsoever. So it just gives you a sense of of, um, how sensitive they are to the needs and and, um, prerogative of capital in this country. And there's some examples where under the pressure of 
the workers' movement and, you know, trying to do what you said as well of, of modernising the Australian economy, figures like Whitlam did try to go a little bit further than that um, and he was deposed, you know, yeah. by, by basically the capitalist class, by, um, well, a kind of strange uh, conglomeration of the capitalist class, the Liberal Party and the, the Queen. <laughs> um, the Governor General, yeah. <laughs> and that's a good example um, of the checks and balances of the state that, you know, Liberals love to go on about as if this is, you know, going to hold power to account or keep it in check. Um, actually, you know, when these checks and balances are used, whether it's like an unelected judge or an unelected bureaucrat like, you know, uh, Governor John Kerr, um, these are overwhelmingly used to discipline any left actions, any actions that, you know, are seen as going uh, too far. Yeah, and a, a really good example of what an optional extra parliament is for the capitalist class is Chile in 1973 when the Allende government was overthrown in a, a brutal and bloody coup by the military um, and, you know, really the military was supported by the whole capitalist class of Chile in that endeavour um, because they were the uh, Allende government and more importantly the workers' movement that was inspired to uh, rise up to, you know, have a whole series of sh- strikes across the economy um, that was seen as too dangerous. And so democracy is not allowed <laughs> in cases like that. And, you know, there have been cases like this across history. I mean, that's what the Nazis were as well, in a way, was uh, the capitalist class reacting to the threat of the workers' movement, the massive, you know, communist party and um, and socialist movement by overthrowing democracy entirely. And the Nazis were very well supported by the majority of the capitalist class. Yeah, and because one of the main functions uh, for parliament for the capitalist class is that it's a safety valve for discontent and that it helps to stabilise society. So when elections are not doing that anymore and they seem to be adding to, you know, chaos in the context of rising class struggle, um, capitalists are very willing to do away with any slither of democracy. Well, let's move on to the, what I called before the fluffy parts of the state, the welfare system, the healthcare system, education. Um, And these are often seen, you know, somewhat rightfully as uh, public goods. And in a lot of cases, they were won, they were hard won gains that the workers' movement fought for. or at least the extension of, of you know, uh, healthcare and education and so on was definitely part of uh, the struggles of the past. Things like the dole, which was um, partly, you know, won, fought for and won during the Great Depression. There were strikes to defend Medicare and so on. Um, but I think the, it goes much beyond that. The state has to maintain the working class as an exploitable and skilled pool of labour for the capitalist class. So they can't just let them be unskilled or die at a, a, an early age. Um, and actually the state has to put a lot of time and resources into uh, educating and raising the next generation of workers. And so they ha- then also have to provide them with a bare minimum of things like healthcare and welfare if they're unemployed, insurance and so on, so that that, that massive outlay of resources isn't uh, doesn't go to waste. Yeah, and all of these different parts of the state um, are really impersonal, alienated bureaucracies that are, you know, even if uh, socialists defend them and fight to extend them, 
um, are within capitalism organized around the logic of the, of the profitability of capitalism. So it was think of like education, both when public education was kind of conceded by the capitalist class um, was where, you know, as capitalism got more sophisticated and there was an obvious need to have workers uh, who had a higher level of skills um, and that, you know, it was part of the push then after World War II, for example, for the extension of higher education, university education, not just for the rich and the middle class and professionals, but increasingly, um, you know, sections of skilled white collar workers as well. And really like the education system, like from, you know, primary school all the way through um, is so coordinated around this logic of creating the next generation of workers. Like school is so different if you're a working class kid at a public school compared to, you know, the private schools with boat sheds that, you know, <laughs> posh rich kids um, get to go to where yeah. they're, you know, taught they're going to be the leaders of the future. Where they learn that kind polo. Of thing. Oh, I always thought that was amazing. Like some of the really ritzy schools in yeah. Sydney have like polo, like where you ride around. I don't even know what polo is to be honest, I, but it seems to involve involved. horses and sticks. And I think there's a ball as well. <laughs> polo shirts maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Um, and they're funded also fancy. still by the state actually. This yes, being exactly. private and for profit, they get a lot of state funding. I've still never really come to terms with the fact that they get more funding per student, the private schools than the yeah. public schools. Like I just don't even understand how that that works out mathematically for the government, but that that is the case in Australia. Yeah, and you like and you think about like how everything about school is sort of geared to prepare the next generation of workers for work. So you have to like wear a stupid uniform and get used to maybe you have to go and wear a stupid uniform when you're a worker. You have to respond to all of the bells. You have to, um, you know, respond to, you know, arbitrary rules um, by dickhead principles. Um, and you are taught that you are competing with all of your classmates, um, you know, standardised testing, uh, that kind of thing. Not to mention the curriculum like we've been talking about with the genocidal war going on in Gaza like um, we mentioned during the um, school strike the other week that kids and teachers are just not allowed to talk about Palestine in school yeah um, instead you've just got to put up with just endless discussion about the diggers and the Anzacs and <laughs> all of the national mythos yeah. yeah yeah exactly another institution like this is the welfare system the welfare state um, which I think you know is still organised around the logic of capitalism. And it's really, I think the ruling class as a whole, including the state bureaucrats that run the welfare system, see it as a necessary evil. Um, they do have to make, you know, provide some uh, pittance for people who are not employed or are underemployed or who have, you know, special circumstances and so on. But they want to do that at, at the lowest cost possible to the state and to the system overall. Um, and they, they, it really, they've created over centuries this idea of the deserving poor of, you know, um, and with it, the undeserving poor, the dull bludgers, the people who, um, you know, are just taking the system for a ride and so on. And so the whole system is like built to be very humiliating, to involve a lot of surveillance of people, um, a lot of conditions on whether or not people can access their welfare, um, the most gratuitous and horrendous example I think is um, that that exists in a lot of Aboriginal communities where people have to access their welfare on a basics card, basically a card where you can you can only spend at certain stores so the government can actually control what you buy and how much you spend. Yeah, and like kind of rations. Thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is. Um, and again, it's associated with this whole idea that the 
there's something nefarious about the the people who are who are giving welfare to. Yeah, the other horrific example of this recently was the robo debt scandal. So that was the government deliberately using this automated computerized system uh, to supposedly find all of these uh, debts and overpayments of welfare recipients that uh, the bureaucrats that oversaw it knew that it was producing a huge number of uh, inaccurate debts. And basically they just hounded people um, uh, with these uh, orders that they needed to repay their debt at risk of being um, you know, kicked off welfare. You know, some of the most marginalised uh, and poor people in Australian society. And this robo-debt uh, system um, has been documented to have led to several people committing suicide because yeah. of the stress um, and anxiety and fear, um, as well as just humiliation people experience yeah. from basically being told they're criminals uh, and who had supposedly been paid um, you know, incorrectly yeah. um, and they hadn't been at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people were worried they were going to go to jail and that they would never be able to pay back like thousands of dollars worth of made-up debt, which to the government is an absolute pittance. They don't give a shit about these piddling Mm. amounts, but to ordinary people was the difference between being able to eat or not or being homeless or not. Um, So, yeah, and, you know, it's just come out recently with the Royal Commission into it just how uh, conscious the creation of this system was. They just wanted to you know, do what the, the welfare system does best, humiliate people, um, you know, squeeze them for everything they're worth and, and try and minimise the cost um, of the welfare system and, and punish the dull bludgers, so-called. Uh, so, yeah, Scott Morrison and a lot of other Liberals were really de- – and not just Liberals but, like, these people we've been talking about who are at the heads of the bureaucracy, well-paid bureaucrats um, who see the poor as, you know, just scum and vermin – like deliberately created this system and defended it as well and, you know, kept something like it in in place for years. Yeah, and in this cost of living crisis, Labor refusing to give real increases to welfare despite the fact that even before the cost of living crisis, like things were so dire in terms of people living below the poverty line um, on unemployment welfare uh, payments that even really moderate institutions of capitalism like business representatives were saying like oh you should probably increase this a yeah. bit um and the reality is capitalism produces unemployment that's just like a natural feature of the system working like full employment like they consider it basically full employment if you've got like what three percent employment uh, unemployment yeah. anyway um and that's really important anyway in like keeping um wages down uh for capitalism but I think it really shows like ideologically they, you know, they even if they can recognise that the state should provide, you know, some degree of welfare, you know, to stop workers who are um, for a short time unemployed from just falling into total impoverishment, ideologically they really want to basically treat people like absolute scum uh, for, you know, daring uh, to, you know, eke out a living if they are not working. Yeah. Yeah, I think all the stuff about doll bludgers and whatever. There's, there's also this sense in which the state plays an ideological role in making sure that people don't ever think they can get a free lunch, you know, like nothing can come for free. You just got to work like that. Even though the capitalists don't really have to work very hard or, or at all, the rich don't have to, but poor people and working class people are really inculcated with this idea from a very young age that you've got to work for everything that you, um, that you get. You don't, there's, you don't deserve anything just by, virtue of being alive (laughs) um and I think you know you see this in the fact that 
like we pay for all of these government services. You know, none of them are really free in Australia anymore in, you know, since the like 40 years of neoliberalism. Public transport you pay for, you pay through the nose for the healthcare system, you know, including parts of the the public healthcare system. Um, and so I think that's part of it is is this ideology of of um, nothing comes for free. And then there's also just the fact that the government sees it as important to um, boost the profits of private industry. So they've increasingly privatised whole sections of the state that they, you know, almost anything that's not nailed down. So, for example, the privatisation of public transport that's happened, you know, across the country um, at an alarming pace, like pretty much all the buses in New South Wales now are privately owned companies competing against each other on the market um, that have driven down wages and conditions for the bus drivers um, and it certainly hasn't like improved the services or anything for the ordinary uh, people who catch those um, services. Yeah, and even when these sections of the state aren't privatised outright, they're still you know nom- nominally um, government run or government um, funded, they're still organised in the same kind of hierarchical way in terms of their internal structure with a you know top bureaucrat boss um, at the top and increasingly like streamlined to be, you know, labour saving um, and even profitable. Like I work in the university sector, we mentioned earlier, like vice chancellors get paid, um, you know, millions of dollars um, in many instances. Um, and universities are now run for profit, um, even though they're, you know, government funded um, institutions that have, you know, they don't post a profit, they post a you know, surplus, um, have huge investments um, on the market. Um, so, you know, you really wouldn't know the difference working at a publicly funded university versus working at a private college. Well, so we've kind of put our analysis of the capitalist state. And I, I think it's important to now talk about socialist strategy. How do socialists relate to the state? What do, what do we think about it? And there are debates about this, obviously. So social democrats um, and kind of more centrist socialists want to perfect the state. You know, they think that socialism isn't the abolition of classes necessarily, but just having a massive, great welfare state, universal health care, maybe things like universal basic income or whatever, um, where the state kind of... Uh, just improves people's lives. Um, you know, maybe you nationalize a bunch of industries so that they're not subject to profit, et cetera. And I think this is falls well short of what we think needs to happen. For one, there's real limits on how much how many of those reforms you can even win under capitalism, because again, the capitalist state isn't some neutral institution that can be wielded to create more like a better welfare state. It's something that serves the interests of the capitalist class. Um, but I think beyond that, like, we actually want to see a classless society. We want to see a society where things are not, you know, there's not a capitalist class producing things for profit. Um, and to, to imagine a society like that, you have to imagine overthrowing and smashing the state that protects capitalism. So we want to smash the state. <laughs> That's what revolutionary socialism is all about, really. Yeah. Every serious transformation of society well short of socialist revolution but just every serious kind of structural transformation has actually required a revolutionary challenge to the state um so like anti-colonial struggles getting rid of monarchies and kings and feudalism in the past getting rid of dictatorships um to win 
even just parliamentary democracy, ending slavery. These all required revolutions. Unfortunately, those revolutions um, didn't uh, smash the state. They replaced one minority order uh, with another. So the idea that you can reform your way to socialism, I think, is just totally utopian. Like it has Mm. required a revolutionary challenge to the status quo to make uh, any kind of structural changes that fall far short of, you know, workers seizing the means of production, taking control of society, implementing socialism. Yeah, I think the probably the most common idea on the left about the state is something like that held by Nikos Palantzis, you know, the idea that, yes, the state is an instrument of class rule, but it's an instrument, right? It can be captured and, and altered and, and changed and used by any class. So it happens to be in the clutches of the capitalist class now, but, you know, one day the working class can seize it. And obviously we've seen um, across capitalist history, but, you know, even in the last 20 years across Europe, in America, in, uh, in Britain, all these attempts to um, to basically win parliamentary power by various left and socialist groups, uh, in, you know, to in order to reform the system. Um, and, like, obviously we're for the struggle for reforms, it's worth saying. Like, we think that uh, there are heaps of things that the, cap- the working class can fight for and win within the system. That stuff is important and we think it's also, it's not just important because you can win good things for the working class, it's also important because the struggle for reforms can alter the way people think. It can give workers confidence. It can uh, make them struggle for more reforms. It can make them even struggle against the system uh, in its entirety. But we don't think you can actually reform capitalism using the state that we've described throughout this episode. There's a bunch of reasons for this, which probably by now you can guess. Like it's not really democratic on the one hand. Like think of all of these unelected bureaucrats um, that, you know, control most of the the various state departments. So even if you had a bunch of somehow revolutionary socialists occupying the parliamentary part of the state, every other part are going to be full of pro-capitalist buckwits that want to stymie you at every moment. Yeah, and aside from all of the unelected bureaucrats in the state, um, not to mention, very importantly, the generals um, who are capable of you know just overthrowing elected governments, the bosses control the economy. Like this is actually... Uh, where power resides ultimately um, in capitalist society and that's where power needs to be seized. Like the idea that um, a social democratic government could get elected and then just hand power to workers or, you know, uh, take uh, the power away from uh, the bosses um, who own um, all of the means of production um, I think is ludicrous and that's why a revolution is necessary um, for workers to not just go on strike and shut down production, but actually to you know take over their workplaces to start to organize them along democratic lines. And that's really what revolutionary socialists mean when we talk about workers' power. That's why when we talk about revolutions in history, like the 1917 Russian Revolution, um, things like the Soviets or the workers' councils, these are the institutions of workers' power that have the potential to reorganize the economy from uh, the bottom up and those um those workplaces can't be seized um from you know from the position of the state they have to be seized uh, by the working class on mass yeah and i guess it's worth questioning like what we mean by smashing the state it's a thing you can kind of uh throw around <laughs> an idea you know like it's something that um, anarchists definitely talk about but what we mean by it is 
I, I, like I think I like to think about all those different institutions that we've talked about, right? So there are some of those institutions that are just irredeemable. They, they, their sole and only function is to defend the capitalist class's interests. And the most obvious is the, the police, but I think the courts as well. Um, I think the, the military as it exists, as, um, all are there to defend violently capitalist power. So those things have to be basically destroyed. <laughs> like we're not going to win over the police. We're not going to reform the police or something uh, and, and workers aren't going to take over the police. Like that just has to be uh, destroyed. So when we say abolish the police, like that's what we mean. In the course of a revolution, workers would have to uh, basically abolish and disarm the police in order to make that revolution. Um, but then all the, uh, those other sections of the capitalist state that we talked about, like the education system, the healthcare system, there's class contradictions within these these institutions. You know, there's millions of workers that actually make all the hospitals and the schools and so on run, but they're controlled by a small crust of uh, bureaucrats who run things in the interests of the capitalist class. So those parts of the state, I think, would have to be sort of debureaucratized and um, that hierarchy that currently exists would have to be turned utterly on its head and workers would have to run those parts of the state in the same way that they would have to take over running the rest of production, what we kind of think of as the private economy. Yeah, one interesting thing um, after the Paris Commune of 1871, which is like the first workers' revolution, the only correction that Marx and Engels ever made uh, to the Communist Manifesto um, was actually about smashing the state, um, which they had, you know, definitely thought that you needed a revolution um, before this, but they, through actually seeing a, a workers' revolution that, you know, um, uh, ultimately failed but got some of the way towards trying to set up a workers' state, they had a clearer idea of the fact that workers need to build their own state from the ground up. So this quote was that they added was, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. And I think that thing you were talking about, like you need to disperse the police, you need to break the military down along class lines and disperse, um, you know, the generals and build up, um, you know, a, a workers' state um, in, a, in a transition uh, to socialism, to communism, um, that is actually based on, you know, the armed mass of the working class and the working working class becoming um, the ruling class governing society um, uh, by uh, repressing the capitalists, rep, um, taking all of their property off them um, and dispersing all of the um, repressive parts of their state machinery. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is important. Like a worker's state would need to be a centralized body that, like you said, broke the military along class lines, was the the armed body of the workers' movement and was connected to the, um, or essentially was the organization of workers across all of these different industries taking over their workplaces, that that state would have to destroy the capitalist system. It's not like that would just, the capitalist system and the capitalist class would just evaporate the day after you um overthrow the state you know so the, that's the point of a worker's state is to expropriate the capitalists um to reorganize society along socialist lines so that the principle that marx talked about you know uh many years ago of from each according to their ability to each according to their need could actually be a reality um and that class itself would uh, would cease to exist so that's something that the working class has to actually consciously do through its own 
state apparatus that would be very, very different to the horrific um, state behemoth of the capitalist class that we've just described. It would be something that was um, democratic from the bottom up that was based on workers' power in the economy. Yeah, and Marx and Engels were very clear about um, this question, particularly after experiencing um, the 1848 revolution and then even more so um, the Paris Commune, that the bourgeois state needed to be smashed, a worker state would be necessary to get rid of the capitalist order. But ultimately Marx and Engels thought that states uh, would become a thing of the past, a thing of history. I think Engels says um, that they would uh, belong perhaps in a museum of antiquities um, on alongside the spinning wheel um, and the bronze axe. And what he thought was that um, – what he argued was that the abolition um, of classes, which is the ultimate goal of communism, which would take some time after a revolution, would also go alongside the abolition of the state, including the workers' state. The state would ultimately uh, wither away. And the whole argument of Marx um, and Engels was that states are the product, the inevitable product of class society. They arose long before capitalism with the rise of classes and they only exist when one class needs to repress, you know, one or other um, classes, so the capitalist class oppressing the working class. And so the workers do need a state as well to, you know, assert um, uh, their democratic rule over society, um, to repress and disperse the capitalist class um, and uh, the remnants of their order. But ultimately a social, like a fully communist society um, is one without any state authority. Our comrades Every single Red Flag Radio listener has got to get down to the Marxism Conference coming up on the Easter long weekend. It's the biggest event um, on the left-wing anti-capitalist calendar in Australia and lots of international guests will be there too. So that's Thursday the 28th of March to Sunday the 31st of March. It'll be down in Melbourne. Um, and this is really an unmissable event. There's literally over a hundred different sessions uh, on topics about, you know, theory, the history of, sort of movements and revolutions, uh, contemporary struggles, and we have a whole bunch of guests um, who are part of the socialist movement um, overseas, from you know Kenya to Palestine to Argentina, coming to talk to us about the struggle uh, against capitalism in 2024. Yeah, and it's a big conference, so well over a 1,000 people come every year um, and it's just a wonderful opportunity to meet lots of different left-wing people, to hear about these struggles happening around the world, um, to learn the history of our movement and so on. Um, one of the things that is a real feature of this year is just how many sessions there are. We were looking at them before this and... Yeah, there's over a hundred, but when you actually like read them all, it is a smorgasbord of left-wing topics. Um, so we won't go through every single one. You should check it out on the marxismconference.org website. The program is up there. There's also some readings um, uh, for each session and, and that, that will be updated in the coming months. Um, but I was wondering, Chloe, like what you're most excited for at, at this conference. Um, well, other than the international speakers, um, I am really keen for, there's like a theme of sessions on the political history of things. There you go. Kind of interesting yeah. things. Um, so. What the, things are we talking about? Things here? like, um, <laughs> drugs. So there's a session on narco-capitalism, um, a political history of drugs. 
There's a session on auto capitalism, nice. a political history of cars, and there's also gastro capitalism about food. So this is going to be, I assume, applying Marxism, historical materialism to all of these things and just right. how they're shaped by and used by capitalism. Kind of yeah. something for everyone. If yeah. you like food, food drugs, cars, or drugs, <laughs> maybe all three at once. <laughs> Um, then learn how they are shaped by the capitalist system. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing that I'm really excited for, I mean, there's so much, but um, one theme is like revolutions. This is something we do at every conference, you know, uh, talk about a series of different revolutions. But there's some really interesting ones and quite modern ones at this conference. Um, so there will, as always, be the Russian Revolution, but we're also talking about the Portuguese Revolution of 1974, which is really incredible and like a little-known revolution, um, but very important. Workers basically, um, when there was a, a military coup to overthrow a hated fascist or quasi-fascist dictatorship, this meant that workers poured out into the streets in their millions. Um, there were huge factory occupations, like a wave of strikes, <clears throat> and basically a year and a half of a really... Um, deep revolutionary process, uh, which failed and um, was eventually kind of tamed and put back in its box. But that session will be about trying to understand um, both the complexities of that revolution and some of the interesting lessons out of it for revolutionaries today. We'll be talking about Iran in 1979 as well. Um, the session is called the Stolen Revolution. Um, you can probably guess who stole it, the, um, the Islamist leaders who currently run Iran. But, you know, in 1979, that as well was this process of um, really incredible struggle where workers formed their own democratic organisations, um, you know, took over many factories and there was a, an important uh, revolutionary process there as well. We'll also be talking about Bolivia, a whole revolutionary process that went from 2000 to 2006. And uh, one that I'm really excited about is to talk about Syria. Um, which has been slandered actually as uh, not actually a revolution. Um, but in 2011, when the Arab Spring happened, um, there was an important um, mass mobilisation of ordinary people in Syria as well against the hated dictator Bashar al-Assad. Um, and we'll be talking about the, the um, crushing of that revolution and, again, some of the lessons from that. So kind of some interesting ones that you don't normally hear about uh, and there'll be people who, you know, are, are very well-versed in those um, revolutions to talk about them at the conference. But that is just a taste. We just thought we'd tell you some of the things that we're excited about. But definitely go and check out the program uh, and get your tickets ASAP. But until next time, we have a world to win. Mm-hmm.